0: All right. Living by the book, we are talking about the how-tos of interpretation. We're going to avoid spiritual shipwrecks. We've got to properly sail the seas of interpretation. Um, look just for a second at Second uh, Peter chapter three, verse sixteen. Let's talk about this just for a moment. Second Peter chapter three and verse. Well, we'll begin in verse fifteen and uh, jump down to verse sixteen. concludes his second epistle, and he says this in verse 15. Consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them some of these things, in which are some, uh, some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures." Coupling this with 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, that is that we are to be diligent to present ourselves approved unto God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And here's some, Peter says, that take the writings of Paul, some things that he's written are hard to understand. Absolutely, I would amen that. But he would, they would take these scriptures and they would twist them around. What's the implication of that? I can rightly divide the word of truth, or I can wrongly divide the word of truth. I can draw conclusions that are certainly applicable within the text and that uh, are there in the text, but I can also twist the scriptures to make it say something that that scripture doesn't say. What's going to help me with that? What's going to keep me from that? Let uh, Let me better phrase that. It is this process that we're talking about as far as living by the book. When we talk about the three processes or the three steps of uh, living by the book it's not the what so what now what we'll do those in just a moment what are they observation interpretation and application very good and on the second step of interpretation we're dealing with what the text means Observation has to do with what the text actually says, what's there, how the words are phrased, uh, what keywords does he emphasize, what repeated words, what transition words, all of those things are in the process of observation. When we get into the uh, steps of interpretation, we're looking at what the text means. Then in the third step, which we'll talk about in the last two weeks of this quarter, is the application. Now, what do I do with the text? How is it that I can best live with this text now that I know what it says, what it means? Now, how does it apply to me? Right. And again, you need to do these things in order in order to be, uh, uh, extract the meaning that was there for uh, the people of that day first and then came to us. We talked about last time the two, uh, the first two C's, which is content. Content. What's there? You take your left hand and you say, I can look at the who, the What? The where, the when, the how, and the palm represents the why. I ask all these questions about the text that I'm studying. And I'm looking at uh, the characters and how they interact with one another. If you're looking at a narrative, uh, you look at how um, he says something. Why did he say that that way? Why did he use those words? Why did he uh, mention that especially? And so what you're doing is just getting the circumstances, a feel for how everything fits together. When you look on the other hand, and again, all of this was from last week, and I think you can find the lesson on, uh, on the internet if you're interested in, uh, in talking about these things. The right hand, you've got the keywords. What words seem to be important in this passage? The repeated words, the unusual words, the like or unlike words, the hinge words, uh, and then the summary of the section, the elevator, right? If I can't get off or get onto the elevator and somebody says, what did you just study? What text did you read? What did you read from John chapter 2? And I can't uh, summarize the sentence in maybe a statement or two, then I need to go back and really take another look at it, right? Because it ought to be that I come away with the summary that if I look at verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, all of those verses hang on that main idea. You remember that in school, we used to take the CAT test, right? Uh, The California Achievement Test, even though we were in Texas. I never understood that, right? But uh, they would give you a long passage of of, uh, a narrative or a story or a how-to or something, then almost guaranteed the first question they were going to ask you is, what's the main idea of this passage? What's the main idea? What is the overarching theme or focus that he's trying to concentrate on. We would do well if we ask the same question of the text that we're studying and the text that we're reading in order to derive the right application. The second C that we talked about last time was context. There are two types. Context is literary context. Where does this fall within... Well, we're looking at John chapter 2 this morning during the sermon, and so uh, I've got that on the brain. I'm looking at it in terms of where does this fall in the life of Jesus? John chapter 2, Jesus cleaning, uh, cleansing the temple. Now, where does it fall within the life of Jesus? What comes before this? What comes after this? What comes immediately before this? What comes immediately after this? How does this fit in within the life of Jesus as a whole? How does this fit within the Bible narrative as a whole? You can take a step back and you can look, uh, again, broader and broader until you get an um, understanding of how the big picture looks at. But then you can also narrow down to the point where you're looking at individual details. Folks, I emphasized a while back, but we're detectives. All of us, we're detectives. And just like those crime scene shows, well, in a symbol of those crime scene shows, right? You know how the detectives come in and they see the body there and they see the three bullet holes there on the wall and they see three bullet holes over here on the other wall. And they're trying to piece together what happened so it is that they can draw the right conclusion say the butler did it. We're looking at the scene, and we're seeing the way God has unfolded His word in a meaningful way for us. But what we have to do is we have to have the eyes to look at the details and see, okay, I'm going to take a look at this this hole over here. I'm going to look at this word over here. then I'm going to take a step back and a survey of the scene as a whole. How does this fit into the entire narrative that God's trying to reveal? <coughs> Excuse me, and all of these things we're talking about literary context. But there's also the historical or cultural context. When I look at a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and how it talks about it's a shameful thing for a woman to pray with her head uncovered, well, does that mean for me, here's the interpretation, that we need to have women that have head coverings? Some have looked at that passage and they said, well, yes, yes. It's true that the women need to have their heads covered at all times because that's the way that 1 Corinthians 11 talks about. Well, how do I know that that's not applicable to you and me? I've got to go back and look at what happened in the, uh, the historical setting of Corinth and how all of that lays out if I'm going to draw the right conclusions. All right, does so that make sense? Okay, so those are the first two C's. The third one that we're going to be talking about extensively today is The comparison. The comparison. In comparison, we compare Scripture with Scripture because Scripture is its own best interpretation. We draw different kinds of conclusions based upon what we're looking at. It. if I don't look at it in the context of the whole, then I can certainly begin to draw conclusions that are not warranted by the text. But the more that I take Scripture, because it's its own best commentary, And I compare scripture with scripture, the more meaning tends to become apparent. The parts take on the meaning of the whole and the whole takes on the meaning of the parts. Folks, when we're looking at interpreting the scriptures, what we've got to realize is that sound interpretation is always going to take into account the whole teaching of scripture regarding a particular topic or theme or context. There are 40 different writers of the Bible. And there are a composition of over uh, 66 books over the course of thousands of years. But ultimately, what you're going to find is the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. He inspired the whole message to make sure that it was just what he wanted it to be. We can compare several different translations in order to, to, to observe how words or phrases or ideas are translated in various versions. But again, I'm going to do some of that in the application or the observation aspect of the study. But it's also valuable in interpretation. When the New King or excuse me, when the King James uses terms like conversation, keeping your conversation pure, well, conversation means something to me that it doesn't necessarily mean to those people back uh, whenever the King James version was originally penned, right? When he's talking about conversation in the King James, he's talking about manner of life. New King James or ESV or New American Standard or any of the one of the modern translations uses the words that we use because it is that scripture is designed so that we can understand it. All right. Um, what you're going to find is concordances, concordances, reference Bibles are great helps. And in the case of re, uh, reference Bibles, occasionally um, those can be a curse because they read things next to the text that may or may not necessarily be there. Um, I had a friend of mine that gave me a, uh, uh, um, a study Bible and what it did was it minimized the Bible text to basically a column and the rest of it was just commentary on what it was that, uh, that was being said there. And so in a lot of cases you can begin to read the scripture, but immediately your eye jumps over across the page to say, okay, what does this mean? Well, what you're looking at it is through a lens of somebody else that had a lens that they looked at the original text. And be careful of study Bibles, because if my eyes constantly jumping over to what a particular writer or what a particular editor said about what the text is, I'm not necessarily looking at the text, I'm just looking at what somebody else said about the text. That's not necessarily helpful if I'm going to live by the book myself, because I'm living based upon what somebody else has said about the text, rather than looking at it for myself. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Still with me? All right, what are you looking for whenever you hear a sermon or Bible class? Three things. What? So what? And now what? What's the information? So what? So why do I need to know this? Now what? Now what do I do with it? All right. Um, concordances. Reference Bibles, great helps. A concordance is kind of an index to the entire Bible. It lists all the words that appear alphabetically with references where they appear along with a few lines surrounding the words to give it uh, some context. Two important thoughts about concordances. If you're going to get one, get an exhaustive concordance rather than an abridged concordance. Uh, The standard concordance is the Strongs. I remember when I graduated from high school, the gift of the church there in Tyler gave me one of those giant Strongs unabridged accordances. Very, very useful book because what I can do is say, okay, I want to see all the places in the New Testament where the word faith is used. So I turn almost like a dictionary to the word faith. And what you're going to find is a list of all the places where the word faith is translated and how it's translated. And so you begin to look at all those different words and all those different uh, places, and what you're going to do is have a good summary section to say, this is how the Bible uses the word faith. When you look at the word works, would it surprise you to know that James doesn't use the word works the same way Paul uses the word works, particularly in the book of Romans? James says, faith without works is dead. Paul's argument in the book of Romans is is that no man is justified by works. What they're doing is they're using the word in two different ways. Paul is talking about works of merit. Here's these Jews that are now looking at uh, their own righteousness, their self-righteousness, and they're trying to pull themselves up spiritually by their own bootstraps and say, look at how righteous I am because I keep the Sabbath. I, I don't eat unclean things. I, uh, I do all these works. I do all these things. They're looking at it as if it merits something in the eyes of God. And Paul says it doesn't. It doesn't. There's no amount of good works that you and I can do to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps and tell God, God, you owe me salvation. What James is talking about is here is faith and without works, that faith is dead. What's he talking about? He's not talking about those works of merit. He's talking about works of obedience. But if I just take the word works and say, well, it's the same across the board. Well, I'm going to miss something in the terms of interpretation. Because the way Paul uses it, particularly in the book of Romans, is talking about uh, works not justifying a person, but Paul, but James saying, listen, a man is justified because he has faith and he backs that up by works of obedience. Here's the question. Why do we come to church? Do we come to church because we feel like we get our ticket punched and we are good with God for another week and uh, God's going to look at us and say, yep, Andy's here. He's doing good. Or is it we come to worship, we come to church because we're trying to be obedient to God. We want to do what it is that we understand is the result of a thankful heart because of what he's done for us. There's one that's acting by faith and backing that up with works of obedience. I'm going to do what God says because God said to do it. Verses, another one, I'm going to do what God said because I feel like that makes me in good standing with God. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us in good standing with God. And we've got to keep that in mind. All right. So, again, what a concordance does is it takes all those words from works and puts them out on a page. So I can go and I can look up the individual references and get a sense of how it is that the word is used all together. Questions or comments about that? Good questions to ask in interpreting words and phrases and concepts. How does the particular writer use the word or the phrase or concepts in other parts of the book? How does the writer use the word phrase or concepts in other books that he's written? How does this word or phrase or concepts have more than one usage? If it is uh, used more than once, then how are they, uh, what are the other uses? What's the most frequent way this word or the phrase or concept is used? Does the context give me any clues as to meaning? Um, is the word or phrase compared or contrasted with another thing in the context. Is there any illustration in the context that helps clarify the meaning? Think about this. Turn in the book of Philippians. We talk about the book of Philippians as being a book about Christian fill in the blank Book of Philippians is about what? Or what's a phrase that comes up over and over again? Let me say it like that. Humility. Humility? Absolutely. But we talk about it in terms of Christian joy. Joy in Christ. And why is that? Well, because the word joy is used again and again and again. And rejoice is used again and again and again. what's Philippians 4.4 say? Re. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Paul writing this from prison, there's the historical context. Some uh, scholars have indicated that he's been chained to a guard and he's sitting there in this uh, jail cell in Rome under house arrest, waiting for the time when it already seems like he's already appeared before Caesar, but the time when he's probably going to go back and appear before Caesar. But as he's writing these things, what's going on? Well, there's some that begin preaching the gospel in order to try and win souls. He's inspiring some people. Another case in Philippians chapter one, he says there's some that are trying to preach the gospel from envy and strife, and and hoping to add affliction to Paul. And he says, I don't care. He said, whatever uh, way uh, Paul, Christ is being preached, the gospel is being preached. And Paul, in giving this defense of Christian joy, talks again and again and again, as Nelda said, about humility and about our minds. What relationship does our mind have to Christian joy? Everything. Everything. What are you going to say? Christian joy is going to come about as of having the mind of Christ, having a humble mind, having a mind like Jesus. But note this beginning verse 27 now chapter one. Sorry. You may underline these are star these in your Bible. Paul says only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of your affairs that you may stand fast in one spirit with what's the word one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel jump down to chapter two look at verse two fulfill my joy by being what like minded having the same love being of one accord of what's the word of one mind. Look at verse three. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of come on, folks, stay with me. Lowliness of mind. Let each man esteem others better than himself. Look at verse five. Let what? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look down to verse twenty. Talking about Timothy there in verse 19, verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. And there's nobody like Timothy who is going to sincerely care for you like Jesus would. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Therefore, as many of us as are mature have what? This mind, and if anything uh, or if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this in you. Look at verse sixteen, chapter three. Nevertheless, to the degree we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Look at chapter four, verse two. Therefore, my beloved long for a brother, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord beloved, I implore you, Odia, I implore Syntiki to be of thee. Same mind, and I also urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement and with all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Look verse eight. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's anything virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. What does meditation have to do with? It has to do with your mind. What's the issue, Paul? Paul says, I want you guys to be a joyful people. Philippians is a book about Christian joy, but it's about Christian joy and having the humble mind of Christ and having a humble mind that's unified in purpose in Christ And when we fail to do that, when we fail to have that, what's going to be generated? There's going to become strife. There's going to become envy and difficulty. When you look at what he says there, chapter four, verses one and two, here's two women. And it seems like this is kind of the purpose why Paul wrote this epistle to begin with, is so that he can talk about the type of joy that we ought to have as Christians, having the mind of Christ. But here's two ladies, fellow workers in Christ. Ever have two ladies that don't get along, that are hard, hard (laughs) working? That never happens, right? That are hard, hard workers for the Lord, and that are doing a whole lot for the kingdom, but it is that this one is at odds with this one, and they're just, what's going to happen? Well, goes on long enough. This one's going to start rallying troops to their side. This one's going to start rallying troops to their side. Next thing you know, you have the makings for a church split. What's the admonition? Paul says, Euodia, Syntyche, you guys both need to be of the same mind. And he doesn't stop there, but he says, you Christians, the rest of you fellow workers, you encourage this one to get along with this one. What does that mean? That means I don't need to tolerate whenever this one starts mowing against this one or this one starts mowing against this one. Listen, we've got to have the mind of Christ. And so it is that when we find people that gossip about somebody else within the church, particularly brother, sister, in this epistle, in this context, when you find somebody that begins to deride somebody else in the work that they're doing or to avoid this person and say, you know what, I'm not going to be on that team or I'm not going to be on that planning committee or whatever it is that we're, we're, we're putting together because she's on there. I don't want to have anything to do with her. Well, where's your mind? Where's your mind? Where's your joy? Question, is that something that's going to rob you of your Christian joy? Nod your head like this. It is. Why? Because I go into the assembly and I just see her. Right? It happens. It does. I'm going to go sit on the other side of the auditorium. I don't want to have anything to do with her. Well, wait a minute. This is your Christian sister. This is one who has been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus. This is one who we are united together with a common cause and a common purpose for preaching the gospel and teaching the lost of Rosenberg and the surrounding communities and the whole world, as it were, Matthew 28. But if it is, and I'm going to treat that person like if she weren't a Christian and I had my way, she never would be. That's not the mind of Christ. What's going to rekindle my understanding for the fact that Euodia needs to get along with Syntyche, and Syntyche needs to get along with Euodia. The Holy Spirit gets to it when he says, you be like-minded. You want an example of what like-minded looks like. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, didn't consider robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? When it came time for... One of the three of the Godhead to go to earth to become a sacrifice for sins. Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. There was no power struggle in heaven. <laughs> How often is it the churches experience strife and difficulty because there's power struggles? It's gonna take away my... but this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So... I'm looking at a concordance and I see all the places where the word mind is used. And I want to go back and I want to take a look and go and see how this word is not just used within the epistle of Philippians, but throughout the New Testament and how it talks about having the mind of Christ and how it is that we need to guard what we put into our minds. Right. Um, Peter would say in first Peter, chapter one. Uh, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and set your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. What's the way that Peter's using this? Peter says, here's coming suffering in my life. Suffering's coming. What I got to do is I got to gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? When was the last time you used the phrase, gird up your loins? I like cinch up your belt, right? get ready. Here it comes. Peter says, You gird up the loins of your mind. You be sober. You think rationally about things. You set your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you in Revelation. Jesus Christ is obedient children. You make sure that your convictions are settled in your mind. You make sure that you know how it's going to be whenever those Romans come knocking on your door. We hear you're a Christian. We're going to give you one opportunity to come down to the local temple, to the shrine of Caesar. All you need to do is just take a little pinch pinch of incense and say a statement. Caesar is Lord. You drop the incense, we'll let you go back to your home. If not, you're subject to discipline by the Roman government. What form is that discipline going to take? If I don't think about those things, if I'm not ready for those things, it may be in those moments I'm called to compromise. That's what those Christians were facing Question, will I remain faithful to Christ or will I compromise? Peter says you have that settled in your mind before you ever get there. Is that different than Paul uses the term mind? The answer is yes. Paul's talking about it in terms of a mind of humility and service and getting along together. Peter's using it in terms of you be ready because here comes something that your faith is going to be tested. Make sense? Alright, so again, when we're looking at comparison, we want to see within translations, within uh, uh, the book, within the context of the New Testament, within the Bible as a whole, how is this word used? What does this word mean? How does it mean this in this context and this in this context? What a, word it, what a uh, great study it's going to be if um, you just take one word and you do that word study all the way through. And you're going to uh, glean some things that you didn't know before. There's a the homework for you. This is not uh, going to be for a grade, but I want you to... (laughs) i got a couple of chuckles out of it. Right? Homework assignment. You want to do an excellent study, do the word worship. word worship. Take a concordance, or I'm sure there's online concordances where you can go and you can just type into Blue Letter Bible, and it'll bring up all the references for the word worship. How is the word worship used in Old Testament, New Testament? I'm going to take a dictionary, Bible dictionary, like Thayer's or strongs, and I'm going to look at and say, how does the word worship translate? What's the meaning of the word? What's the original meaning of the word? Well, when they used it, it was kind of like a dog coming up and licking the master's hand. I had my dog this morning at breakfast, and I cooked bacon for the girls, and uh, I reached my hand down. The dog came, <laughs> right? The master extends his hand, and we come. It is to bow prostrate towards the earth towards one that's worthy. Word worship, worth. When you look at who you worship and who's worthy of that worship, look at how it's used throughout the Old Testament New Testament. Look at the words that are translated worship. Sometimes words that are translated in one translation, worship may not necessarily be worship. Uh, Romans chapter twelve, verse two, right? Um, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable uh, will of God um, I'm looking at tra- chapter 12 verse 1 right? Uh, I urge you, I uh, beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service in one translation they actually put in the word worship, is that the word worship And some have gotten the idea wrongfully that all of life is worship. All right. When I walk my dog, when I wash the car, when I mow the lawn, I am worshiping. That's not the way that the Bible uses the word as a whole. In fact, Abraham, when he talked about Isaac and taking him to sacrifice, he said, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. What's the implication? Worship is something you make an appointment for. Hope to talk about that in the sermon um, sometime in the future. But again, looking at the word and looking at the way that the word is used throughout Scripture will help us to understand better how it is used and how it's uh, how it's uh, supposed to be translated and uh, overall look of what the word looks like. Questions, comments, drives, complaints, irritation, sir. I didn't hear the word intent in this discussion, and, and maybe it doesn't belong there, but. My mind goes back to the Old Testament where even God respected the intent of some of his leaders long, long ago. Now are you talking about worship or are we talking about uh... Well, uh, behavior, worship, I, I don't know, I don't have clear thoughts on it. Okay. But God did give praise or did give recognition for the intent of Sure. And one of the best definitions I can give of worship is an intentional meeting between God and man, particularly man to approach God and to offer God sacrifices. Right. So what we're going to do here in roughly 25 minutes is a meeting. The basic element of worship is a meeting we are coming to God and we are coming into his presence to meet with him in a very special way so that we can offer our gifts and our sacrifices to him, right? What have we brought to him this morning? Worship, blanket term, what have we brought to him? We brought our attention to his word. We brought our money for giving. We brought our remembrance of the death and burial of his son. We've brought our songs of praise. We've brought our prayers and our petitions. And as it were, all of us coming together on this pilgrimage, whatever pilgrimage you've had to make out of the mundane, out of the ordinary, we have this time that we're coming to offer something to God. We've come with our buckets full. And as we begin our worship here, and again, uh, roughly 25 minutes, We're beginning this time where it is that we pour out these things to God out of our buckets to say, God, this is how I feel about you. That kind of puts into perspective whenever we sing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Again, when God says, or Jesus says, God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's an attitude there, but there's also an action there. We offer to God the actions of what he wants, those five sacred acts of what we read about in Scripture, if we're interpreting correctly. And we offer to him our attitudes. God, this is what you mean to me. The way that I sing my songs, the way that my uh, attention is to the Lord's Supper, the way it is that I give. God loves a what kind of giver? Cheerful giver, right? Second Corinthians 8 and 9. God loves a cheerful giver. The way that it is that I offer my prayers, uh, I missed one. My attention to His Word whenever it's opened for our understanding. And the way it is that we worship. We're giving those things to God because we've made this special appointment with Him to draw near to Him in a special sense. 10 o'clock or on a Sunday morning. It is the Lord's day. Lord commanded this, Acts 20, verse 7. And as we look at the example of early Christians, they gathered together on the Lord's day in order to worship our God. And as they came near, so we come near this morning, 2,000 years later, based upon what we have here in the Bible, and as much as possible, we offer these things to God for his glory and for the edification of the church. That's why we're here this morning. Socializing, yeah, that's great. Being together as Christians, yes, absolutely. Stirring up one another loving love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, right? Second uh, Corinthians, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Yes, absolutely. But folks, our primary reason for being here is to exalt the God of heaven, to say, God, you mean this much to me. Thank you for this appointment that we can come together as your people and to offer these things to you. All right. Questions or comments? Good point, Danny. A little by the wayside, but uh, we'll jump right back into it. So. 1,003, 1,004, 1,005. All right, very good. Um, like-minded, like-mindedness. Reading scripture properly interpret scripture is a wonderful way to profit from our study of God's word. With the tools and the helps available to us, folks, you and I, anybody who's willing to pay the price can come to a much greater understanding of God's word. That's the truth of the matter. There was in a long time ago, and still today, the, the thought and the feeling persuade or uh, pervades a lot of places is that we've got to come to the preacher in order to properly understand God's word. There are a lot of people that have gotten the idea that I can't understand it without the preacher's help. And so what you have is really the clergy laity system. I'm just a layman. I don't understand. I can't understand. I've got to go to this one individual in order to understand what the Bible says. Folks, God gave his word for our understanding. God gave his word for our application. Are those those times when we need somebody's help? The answer is yes, Absolutely. Right. What did the uh, Ethiopian nobleman, when he was there on the road and, and Philip came running next to him, Philip ran up and he said, what? Do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody guides me? Philip gets up in the chariot, he preaches to this man Jesus, and this man wants to obey the gospel. But because it is that we need help sometimes doesn't mean, folks, that we can't understand it. Comparison is one of those tools, just like the content and the context, of helping us, as our own understanding, to be lifelong students of the Word, so that way, when our neighbor, our friend, comes to us and says something about Scripture, and you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, did they use that in the right context? Did they use that in the right way, giving honor to the way that Paul uses the words in Philippians, uh, with the way that it is that that's, uh, that the thought pervades through Scripture? Can I look at what he said, and can I say? Yes, that's a good application, or no, that's not so much of a good application. If he's using it in the context of, well, I can lift cars off of small children. I can do uh, I know, all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? Well, that's not a good interpretation of that text. If he talks about it in terms of suffering and being uh, in difficult, dire straits and saying, listen, I know my God's going to get me through this. Well, yeah, I see that in the book of Philippians, particularly contentment with their regard to, you know, uh, being abounding or being abased or whatever it is, because I have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter two, three, four, 4, all the way through, because I have this mind, I can be joyful even in those circumstances where things may not necessarily bodily be optimal or mentally for that matter. Questions or comments about that? Letting scripture properly interpret scripture is a wonderful way to profit from our study. With all the tools and helps available, anybody who's willing to pay the price can come to a much greater understanding of God's word. Um, One last verse, Acts uh, 17 and verse 11. Acts 17 and verse 11. Look at verse 10. Brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. They went out of uh, Thessalonica and they're heading to Berea. They sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Brothers and sisters, it's not God's will that we look and we hear somebody say something. Well, God just wants me to be happy. There's a statement. Is that true biblically or is it not? How do I know? Unless I know the scriptures, unless I know where to look in the scriptures and how the scriptures lay out, what's a better statement? God wants me to be holy. Is that true? Yes. Uh, First Peter chapter one, God wants me to be holy. Holy. And thereby base my contentment or my satisfaction, my blessedness upon the fact that he's blessed me and I know that he's never going to leave me nor forsake me. That makes me joyful. That makes me happy. But it's not the fact that God wants my happiness at all, at all sacrifice of what his word says. Happiness, joy, contentment, all of those things come through Our humility and our submission to him. Again, we're back to the book of Philippians. And looking at his word and saying, God, I'm going to obey you no matter what your word says. That's the attitude that's going to allow us to be really the most joyful in this life. Questions or comments? I can't believe we finished early. Can you, Don? And I even talked slower, didn't I? No. (laughs) Yes, sir. Alexander Campbell and those who were trying to restore the Testament Christianity were arguing that people can understand the Bible on their own. Mm -hmm. The the denominational atmosphere at that time was that you needed a catechism, a humanly created document, to tell you what to believe. Right. a priest or a preacher to tell you what to believe and Campbell said you can take the word I wonder how much we've tried to emphasize that not just to ourselves but to other people sure because if it had if it had acceptability then you wonder if it have acceptability now if we told people all you have to do is read your Bible and give it a fair understanding, and mm-hmm. you can do what's right. Exactly, and there are a whole lot of lenses that men have created for us to view the Bible through. Um, what, uh, what Alan was talking about is, you know, in the Restoration Movement, from Alexander Campbell and uh, Martin Novy Stone and several others, their argument was, let's go back to the Bible, because I can use the rational mind that God's given me to understand it. What others were saying during that time is, is that here's a creed book or here's a catechism. Here's a lens that you have to put on to properly interpret what's there in the scriptures. You know, it's the same thing at Jesus Day. You know, here's the Pharisees that say you have to interpret scripture through the lens that we give you. Otherwise, you're not interpreting scripture correctly. Um, When they, you know, when Jesus disciples roll in the hand, uh, the the wheat in their hands and they say, why your disciples work on the Sabbath? Well, they defined work in a way that God didn't ever. And they drew a conclusion that God didn't ever intend for somebody to draw. But again, people have been doing it for years and years and years. The difference, folks, is and what Alan's talking about is coming to the Bible with your beliefs versus coming to the Bible for your beliefs. If I come to the Bible with my beliefs, I'm going to look into Scripture and I'm going to say, well, let me see. Let me interpret Scripture the way that it is that makes me happy. That means that this teaching of Jesus, I can just kind of take Jehoiakim's spin knife and cut it out, or I can you know, just cross it out because, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Or, again, the attitude of coming to the Bible for my beliefs to say, God, if I were to take a blank slate, I'm going to take a blank slate, and I'm going to write the words of you, your word on my heart. And I'm going to internalize and I'm going to be obedient no matter how difficult, no matter how uh, time consuming, no matter how uh, involved it calls me to be. That's just what I want to do. I just want to be a Christian, nothing more, nothing less. And folks, that's what we're talking about with regard to observation, interpretation, application. I want to take the word of God and I want to apply it to my heart in a way that God has intended for me to do that. And you have that responsibility as much as I do. I hope you appreciate that. Thank you so much for your uh, attention this morning, and we'll finish up uh, how-tos and interpretation next week, and then we will get into the application, Lord willing, in two weeks.